players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Ponder, Pyroblast, Thoughtseize, and many others. Battling head-to-head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is brought to you by the minds behind Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Therabian University, and TheEpicStorm.com. This episode is sponsored by Eminence Gaming. Hello, and welcome to episode 99 of the Eternal Glory Podcast, digital resources for the competitive player. We've already recorded 30 minutes of introductions and banter for the week, available in our supporter-exclusive pre-show. Check out patreon.com slash eternalglory to gain access, or join as a YouTube member for the same content on YouTube instead. As always, I'm Phil Gallagher, aka ThrabenU, joined by... I am Brian Koval, aka Bosch and Roll. And Brian Cook of the Epic Storm. Before we get started here, shout out to our new patrons and YouTube members who just enjoyed that pre-show. We've got cephalid lunch. That comes after cephalid breakfast, I suppose. Three meals a day to keep you healthy. Eric Nilsson and Ryan Palmer. Shout out to those three. If you want to get access to that while supporting the show, both YouTube membership and patreon.com slash eternal glory. And if you happen to be interested in running an event or want your local game store to do so, but you're worried about the logistics of it, Check out Eminence Gaming's Command Tower software. You can create and manage four-player or 1v1 tournaments easily, and its unique pairing system ensures that you don't get paired against the same players multiple times. Visit eminence.events for details. Today's episode is going to be one of those evergreen episodes, one of those episodes where we just kind of talk about some core magic skills. Uh, And this time, it's based in the web browser more so than based in the cards themselves. We're going to be taking a look at some tools and resources, some of which you may already know, some of which you may not, and we're going to kind of delve into like why and how they're useful for the competitive player. Before we jump into all this, I just want to point out that uh, once we get in the weeds, don't forget that there are many ways to play Magic the Gathering online. Uh, We're talking about digital resources, things you can look up and places you can go, but In order to play Magic, there's Magic Online, there's Magic Arena, and then there's a number of free-to-use things like uh, Workstation, Cockatrice, Apprentice. These are all uh, user-made things where you kind of click and drag representations of cards around. They're not supported by Wizards of the Coast. They're not, you don't have a collection or anything. It's just a way to interact with cards and get table time on the cheap. So keep in mind all those exist, but that's not what we're really talking about today. We're talking about resources you can use to expand your knowledge and things that will help you play the game. And our first section is about decklist sites. These are places you can go to find decklists and interact with them in various ways. All right. The first one we're going to start off with is MTG Top 8. Um, This is a great site. It has a wide range of events, including small local events that normally wouldn't make it to other major sites. Everything from like your Grand Prix level events to your 10 person local legacy event at your shop. It has reporting for just about anything, which can be good and can be bad in some ways. I was going to say, Phil, that's a double-edged sword. Sometimes when you're talking about metagame percentages with people in discords or on Reddit or whatever, there's a little bit of a mix-up because there's really two philosophies. There's MTG Top 8 and then another site that we'll talk about called MTG Goldfish. And Goldfish tends to use more online data. They do use some smaller events, but it's less so. And with mtg top eight using local events pretty regularly sometimes you have very different numbers 
for example, Blue Red Delver uh, during the height before the ban might have been 20% on Goldfish, but only 8% on MTG Top 8 because it has a lot of local data watering things down. So it's tough to draw a comparison if you're talking across two different things. And I found that to be kind of troublesome when it comes to MTG Top 8. I mean, there's rewards to it too, and we'll get to those. One of the things that's kind of tough about MTG Top 8 is since a lot of these events are kind of like self-reported by something like a store, they don't always fill out every field. Sometimes you will get an event, you'll get a top eight, but you don't know how many players were in it. Sometimes you'll get an event and like the top two deck lists are posted or something like that. So sometimes you get some weird looking data, which is cool sometimes because you get to see some like spicy and interesting deck lists. But other times it's like, well, what does it mean that this deck made it to this website? Sometimes the answer is like, you won two rounds and draw drew in the third round and now you're on a website. Or you had the round one by, lost round two, and then drew in at FNM. Uh, like that's, that might be a like no play one and one deck that you're seeing and you don't know the record that got it there. But you still get to see the deck. And a lot of the times that's all we need to get the creative juices flowing. Or to know that it exists at all. I have a local player. His name's Adam. He top aided Eternal Weekend Legacy a couple years ago. And he is just an encyclopedia of every stupid card and every stupid list that's been played in the world. Uh, I've teamed with him a few times and I'm in the modern seat. He's in the legacy seat. And he'll like lean over and be like, careful. There was a Japanese list that played one sideboard copy of Postmortem Lunge. And I'm just like, okay. (laughs) If you say so, man. But that information comes from sites like MTG Top 8 that are scraping anything they can and making it available for you to consume. A favorite feature of this decklist site for me personally is that it lists major archetypes. So control, aggro, combo, and then it will have the percentages listed among the decks but then at the very bottom and this is where i think the actual gold of the site comes in at least for me is it will say like other one percent and i love clicking on that tab and seeing the the true spice that people haven't discovered yet and there's other deckless sites out there but they don't categorize the spice like mtg top 8 does and you'll click in and you're like ooh, this Thassa's oracle deck combines this and this you're like i'm definitely going to try that this week and just having all of the the sweet brews in one area is just my favorite feature of mtg top eight i would like to second this like as someone who frequently like is looking for spicy things to play for my channel i have hit the other aggro button so many times just looking for the wild things that people are testing like for for the brewers of the world a lot of the things that might normally slip through the cracks kind of end up in an easy to find place on this site however sometimes phil the deck names are sometimes extremely poorly labeled. It might be that sweet aggro or Thassa's Oracle combo deck you were looking for, but it's literally called like my mom's toe jam. And you're like, am I going to click on that deck name? I don't know. Like, is it worth it? That sort of thing. And it's just tough. Yeah. So for example, Pekula is a name that is like very much listed under the aggro section and like that is nonsense to a huge portion of the legacy audience, right? Well, I think part of... Okay, so this is a a con in my opinion, but MTG Top 8 goes all the way back to like 2004 or 5, and it uses a lot of those original deck names from forums like MTG The Source back then. They haven't updated over time. Like, there was a long debate between, like, would MTG uh, Top 8 change canadian threshold to rug delver people are like no it's canadian threshold it needs to stay that way however if you started playing the game in the last 10 years that means nothing to you deck names being descriptive was a big change in the late 2000s early 2010s uh, spearheaded by cedric phillips at star city games when he was in charge of organizing all that he was like no we're not going to do this goofball name stuff magic is better for it more approachable for it And yeah, it is jarring if you haven't been playing the game for 25 years and you come across like deck names like Pakula. So the the site has a robust database and it like it just has so many deck lists over such a huge period of time. But I think its search function is kind of shitty because if you don't know how to use it, it's very easy for you to search and get zero results. 
on the site, when you are going to search cards, you need to start typing the name and then click on the card to add it. And if you don't do that, a huge portion of the time, the search doesn't actually work. And that frustrated me to no end. MTG Goldfish does the same thing. You have to wait for the autofill dropdown, then click on the autofill. You can't just type reanimate. You have to type R-E-A-N, wait for reanimate to populate, and then click on it. That is a thing for Goldfish as well. I think another nice aspect of MTG Top 8 is that it's almost like a historical database. I mean, we're talking about like wanting to see certain metagame decks or whatever, but it also has almost every event going back to 2004 or 5, like I mentioned, for Grand Prix and other large events like SCGs. Like if you really want to see what top eight decks uh, from GP Philly in 2005, they're still there. Like, you can go look and be like, oh, yeah, that Goblin's List was playing Patron of the Aki. That's crazy. Uh, that Like, that is historical information that has been preserved on this site. And that's really important with Watsi purging a lot of the old event coverage. It's really hard to find now. Purging our match history. Remember when every player could look at every match they've ever played in one convenient place? All that's gone. Star City has done some purging of their forums and... Uh, it's hard to find. Their old articles are still there, but some of them can be hard to find. Having a spot where I know I frequently reference like in GP Flash, where Flash dominated the metagame, Goblins got second in that tournament. You would be surprised to learn that a mono red deck kept up in a, in a format dominated by turn zero wins. And you can go look at those results and oh yeah, this Goblins deck. And then you can compare the notes and like, yeah, it, got, it makes sense that Mog Fanatic breaks up the Flash combo. And the sideboard was potent, and it makes sense how this would happen. And then you could really get that perspective of how things moved in the olden days and how we can apply that now or how they don't apply now. All of that's really important. One of one of the things that frustrates me the most about this site is how difficult it is to find a subset of a deck. So, for example, let's say that you want to find, let's say, a Jeskai control deck list. You might find some of them under the four-color control. You might find some of them under blue-white X control, but within blue-white X control, a lot of things labeled blue-white X control aren't actually blue-white X control. You know, what portion of those are blue-white with sideboard revs? What portion of those are actually Jeskai control? You know, I often find when I want to look at a deck list, I pull up a category and I just like right-click, new tab, right-click, new tab, right-click, new tab, the top five or ten deck lists within a category to actually hunt for what I'm looking for. Yeah, I do the same thing. Pro tip, Phil, hold the command key. You won't have to right-click. Just command key click, new tabs automatically. I just saved you at least 0.5 seconds in your life. Boom. All right, now I know. Digital resources. Let's talk about MTG Goldfish. It's probably the site that I use the most. Same. One of the most important features, in my opinion, is the metagame feature. It is a little bit murky. It's not perfect, in my opinion, but it gives you a rough idea. And a lot of the time, that's all I need to construct my my cyborg choices or my main deck flex spots among the decks that I'm trying to brew. It's not perfect because Wizards doesn't provide us perfect information. It's no fault of MTG Goldfish. They do the best they can. No shade. But... Wizard sometimes only publishes one five zero from a top deck instead of the the fifty that might have existed, and but they'll publish the one Nick fit result, so you get one reanimator, for example, and then one Nick fit, and it seems like maybe they're both five zeroing at the same rate, but it's not necessarily true. So, how many times on this podcast have you heard one of us say, for one reason or another? Yeah, just take the top 10 decks in Legacy, whether it's like you're building a battle box, you're getting ready to test for an event, you're getting ready to build a sideboard guide, just like how many times have you needed to do that? Two rows of the metagame page on this site will let you know, oh, right now it's Reanimator, Delver, 8cast, Shadow, so on and so forth. Yeah, the ability to just eyeball what the top 10 decks are with some amount of numerical data backing is really important because... Even as someone who plays Magic and basically Legacy as my full-time job, I would not be able to accurately tell you right now what the top 10 decks in the format are, according to posted results. But I don't need to know that, because I can pull up Goldfish at any time, and it's there easily on display. I use that all the time when like, I do a ton of deck building, and I do a ton of coaching. And a lot of people, when they're in a coaching session, they're asking me, how do I build my sideboard or how do I use my sideboard? What cards are important? 
or they're like, I copied this list. I don't understand this card choice. And then I can be like, okay, uh, this card, let's see how it lines up against the format. And then you can just go one by one where it's like pretty bad against reanimator, pretty good against Acast, pretty good against Delver, pretty good against shadow, pretty bad against lands. And then you're like, yeah, seven of the top 10 decks, this card is good. So that makes sense. And just being able to line up and grid it out like that makes deck building make a lot of sense. So I'm not the biggest fan of Goldfish personally. Visually, Goldfish doesn't show you that much information at one time. When I look at a legacy metagame page on Goldfish on a relatively large monitor, I can see 10 decks comfortably and I can see five more another row below that but it gets cut off a little bit in comparison to the entire thing whereas on mtg top eight on the left hand side i can pretty easily see 30 different decks at the same time and they're like green arrow it's going up red arrow it's decreasing in popularity sorts of things at a glance the play devil's advocate here goldfish does have a larger page with all of the decks in it i mean i'm on it right now it's legacy slash full uh, hashtag online and you get the entire you know, every deck that's placed any finish in the last 30 days is now in here like i mentioned when we were talking about top eight i don't know if i trust those numbers necessarily over at top eight because they do have so many results from people's local game store like your monday night magic or whatever it may be so the arrows up and down personally mean less to me because i care more about the online results not that they're not valid they're perfectly valid if you're you know, if you care about local game store data and a larger picture of what you might see at your game store, no shade. But those numbers just don't mean a whole lot to me. So that's why I prefer the goldfish data instead, because it's just a little more focused. It also matters a lot how you process information. If you're coming from a new player who this episode is uh, revelatory for and you didn't know any of this exists, I think you will process information on MTG Goldfish better. They have these like nice little boxes, like a picture of a marquee card in each deck, and then like the top three cards of the deck, the colors that the deck is, uh, the price of the deck, the meta share. All of that is on this like nice little rectangle in a grid where you can do that for every deck. On MTG Top 8, you get a lot more, and they do a comparable thing, but it's much smaller and... I can eyeball this and be like, yes, this tiny little thumbnail is Green Sun Zenith, and I know what Maverick is, and this little grid makes sense to me at a glance, but Goldfish is really approachable for someone who knows less than that. I also love the layout. I steal this layout all the time when I'm building sideboard guides for my content or even for myself. I'll just screenshot the top 10 to 15 decks, drag it into uh, a picture editor, delete the the information and then i just have like a picture of the card reanimate the word reanimator and then i put in my sideboard guide there and it's just this pre-built grid with nice little pictures on it and it's easy to consume for people who i share it with i i do appreciate goldfish a lot and i do use goldfish more than i use top eight but they are both good for the things that we've said one thing that i do like about them is like once you're on a deck list i think it's very approachable below a deck list you can get a card breakdown of like the most played cards in the archetype, you know, what percentage of decks are playing various things. And on the right hand side, they have a similar decks thing that kind of will just immediately show you other results from that same archetype. And I think that is very nice at just kind of giving you a feel for, you know, what are flex slots and how are people doing with the deck. Phil, you just listed one of my favorite things, and it's only because it's a great tool to win arguments with your friends. So you might be saying, hey, I would play X card, and your friend might say, well, I don't like that card because I was facing, I don't know, green-white depths. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't have a good example off the top of my head. And they had a, I faced a version with Punishing Fire, and you're like, oh, nobody plays that. And they're like, well, I just faced it. So then you can go and look, and you can see, oh, Punishing Fire is actually only in 6% of lists and you're like oh well if it's only in six percent of lists i wouldn't be worried about that like that's just low variance on your part i think you should be building your deck for the other 94 percent of the list or whatever it might be and you'll know sometimes like oh that's not common i don't need to worry about that that sort of thing it's actually incredibly helpful as someone who cares a lot about numbers yeah and if you are advanced enough that you are in the weeds about 
exact deck building. Like if you are an enfranchised is a Delver player and you're trying to figure out your last three or four slots, or if you're an enfranchised something else player and you want to know what Delver players are up to, this like I'm looking at it right now. Dragon's Raid Channeler, four in a hundred percent of decks. Okay, everyone's gonna have those. Delver, four in eighty-five percent of decks. So there are Delverless versions out there or versions playing only two Delvers. Delver is not necessarily a lock for these. Figuring out their flex slots, 1.3 copies of Brazen Borrower across 89% of decks. So I should expect one Brazen Borrower and be prepared for a second some percentage of the time. Like that sort of information is really useful when you're going for something like, do I jam this Court of Grace? How many flash threats do they have that can punish this and take the Monarch right away? And knowing that there is definitely one and maybe two Brazen Borrowers in a list, that's important information to have. And just, I love those tiny little percentages because I am obviously a deeply enfranchised legacy player. If you're moving in that direction, like you're you're going to seriously get into legacy, you probably are going to need to put deck lists somewhere online for the purposes of sharing them. Because let me tell you, anytime someone sends me a picture of a deck list, and they're like, will you play with this? And I'm like, yeah, send it to me as text. Like, give it to me in a way that I can import that and test it on Magic Online. MTG Goldfish is not going to be the most robust site for storing deck lists, but it's one of the easiest. Like, copy, paste, done. If that's all you want is physically to get a link out to someone with a list, it's good for that. Yep, agreed. Anytime someone sends me a screenshot of a deck, I'm like, uh, put that on Moxfield or Goldfish and send it back to me. <laughs> I can't do anything with this. To date ourselves a little bit here, when I was coming up playing a lot of Magic, I used to spend hours reading various articles across websites or forums, and a lot of time was spent reading SEG from players that were much better than me. Those sort of articles aren't super popular anymore. You might find them on a website like Channel Fireball, but they're becoming a little bit less common, or TCG Player Infinite. MTG Goldfish still has tons and tons and tons of great weekly articles on everything from legacy to pauper and vintage. It's really a great resource for new content, making sure that you have the re- like the information you need to get better at the game. So definitely check out their article series. Yeah, we were so deep in the pit talking about their uh, deck and metagame information that we almost forgot to mention they're just a full-fledged content platform as well, which top eight is not. To my knowledge, they don't actually have individual content. They're just a a deck storage zone. Now we're going to go ahead and move to talking about Moxfield.com. I feel kind of obligated to say this episode is not sponsored by Moxfield, uh, although Moxfield does sponsor all of us individually. Even if they didn't, we would be singing the praises of this website. It is very good at what it does, folks. They're the best, Phil. Why wouldn't we praise them? They're just simply the best in the game. Yeah, I agree. It's not even close. And uh, this coming on the heels of our disclosure that we each, you know, are sponsored by them. It 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 doesn't matter. There, it's so good. Um, Moxfield is a deck building website with tons of resources, and we're not going to turn this into a Moxfield commercial because that's not what it is. But things that I love about it is you can put your decks in there, customize them however you want. And you can go as deep or as shallow as you want. If you want to do like the MTG Goldfish thing of just copy paste a list, drop it in, and now it is stored somewhere that you could share, done. It does do that. If you want to manage your own collection, track the cards you own, Moxfield does that. And then you can set preferred printings among cards you own. And there's an update to preferred button that once you copy and paste a list in, You can update it so it actually looks like your cards in the browser. Uh, It helps me know where my cards actually are in real life. I'm like, oh yeah, I do have Reanimator built from the stupid tournament I played. I forgot about that. That's where my Dark Rituals are. That's super awesome. You can go as deep as you want on this. Uh, There's like sideboard, then there's considering. So you can drop cards that are not in the list, but they might be someday and they won't show up when you print out a deck list or share a deck list. They're just there as well. You can write a full primer and just attach that to your list. Uh, I there are people who go crazy. Uh, I imagine I know that Bryant is one of them. He's he's currently waving uh, with just thousands of words on how to play their deck attached to their deck list on Moxfield, and that's an incredible resource for anyone who wants to share anything that they have. 
there is a spot to do that attached to the deck, which is pretty insane. As far as I know, Moxfield is really the only site that does do that compared to Goldfish or Top 8. None of those sites give you the the resource or area to share, hey, here's a quick blurb about the deck that you should know before you play it. Or, you know, a, a long primer like you might have found in the old MTG's The Source days. Uh, it can be shorter as long as you need it to be, and Moxfield provides that. And going back to like 2018, com, I used to have sub-deck pages on the site where i would host like my vintage list with like a hand generator and a little drop down and all that stuff and moxfield is literally just that now there's no need to build a separate page on my site because moxfield just does it everything that those pages tried to do that's what moxfield is now and it's so easy to use i have adored using this site for deck lists because if you need to do some sorting of your deck beyond just like mana value or card type moxfield lets you do that with tags so for example let's say you are playing a cedh deck i'll use my winota deck for an example i have a section for winota attackers that will trigger winota i have a section for hate bears i have a section for winota payoffs i have a section for what my interaction is my you know artifact ramp I can quickly jump back and forth between visualizing the deck in different ways while I'm futzing with my deck building and kind of see how things coming in and out of the deck list goes. And guess what? If you're going to sit there and do that for a long time, there's even keyboard shortcuts for how to do all of that so you don't have to keep clicking through everything. We haven't even gotten to the site's best feature yet, and it is just above and beyond everything else that's out there. Yeah, let's get into one of my favorite features, which is decklist compare. If you go on any deck, uh, there is a drop down menu with some options and you can hit compare and then it asks you for a link. And if you drop another deck's Moxfield link into that, it will pull up a screen that shows you the overlap and then the different cards uh, where it's like these lists are 11 cards different. Uh, Deck A has these 11, deck B has these 11 and the rest of them are shared. That's been incredible for me as I iterate on, especially my CEDH decks. I don't quite go into the lab that hard on Legacy. Seeing a 100-card singleton deck do well in a tournament and then compare it to what I'm doing, it really helps me visualize what the differences are in a way that I can make sense of in my brain. It might be the feature that I use the most on Moxfield, and I go really deep, like, Every, like I'd say once a month, I do a search that is contains commanders Rograk, Son of Roga, and Silas Ren, Seeker Adept. And then I'll load the last 40 decks that have been uploaded, or I'll I'll command click, because who uses right click tab or whatever Phil uses, and then I'll open them all up and I'll compare. I'll say, okay, these ones are two cards different, and I'll just go down the line just looking for new ideas. I go really deep. If you've updated your deck list in the last two months, I've probably looked at it if you're similar commanders, but I love it. It is so, so useful. And I, I want you to imagine the amount of time you would spend with like, let's say like two Yorian legacy dnt deck lists up on different monitors just like trying to manually compare them when you can just like copy paste copy paste click and this site just does it for you like i used to spend so much time comparing individual card choices sideboard options and like this site just does it all for you it is one of the best like sleeper competitive player resources out there in my opinion i recently uh when this iteration of the mtgo vintage cube went live so early may maybe late april this year about a month ago at the time of recording one of my coaching clients keeps the the vintage cube built in paper and he was really struggling to like click drag control f on the two the previous mtgo cube and the current mtgo cube lists and he's like these aren't even arranged in a way that makes sense uh, i want to sort by color not by like mana value and he was really struggling and it took me about 40 seconds to highlight one vintage cube, drop it into a Moxfield deck, highlight the other vintage cube, drop it into a Moxfield deck, and then compare the two. And I was like, here you go. These are the changes from the last episode of the vintage cube to this one in a way that you could sort however you want. He had never seen Moxfield before. And he was like, okay, this is pretty cool. And I was like, and you can, you know, do your, the versions that you actually own because you are. Uh, a real life cuber with like real power and stuff in your cube you probably want to know what you own and he's like oh yeah that's cool 
And then he's like, what would be really great is if I knew what tokens I need to make. And I was like, well, guess what? There's a drop down for what tokens this deck makes. And he clicked that and uh, cover the children's ears. His response was, get the fuck out of here. This, exactly in that tone, like jaw on the floor, could not believe that this thing existed that he had never heard of that did everything that he wanted it to do for an ongoing project that he has. And uh, comparing it is so sick. My personal second favorite thing, and I'm sure you guys do this as well, but especially for decks like the Epic Storm or my Commander deck, I, w- I want to be able to tag my cards and be like, hey, all of my fast mana goes here, all of my interaction goes here, and then I'll filter by the tags that I've created, just so that way I can visually sort my deck in a way that makes sense. Like, hey, my deck has 25 pieces of acceleration, this many lands, you know, just so that way it's not like artifacts and sorceries and instants, because that like that doesn't actually help me. I need to know mana versus versus action and you can just do those things using the mox field tags it's really really nice yeah you probably blacked out when phil said hate bears but he did just say exactly that about his winota deck oh yeah i don't listen to phil when he talks about that yeah i kind of just zone out i'm sorry phil yeah he's like winota i'm gonna check my phone for 40 seconds and then repeat the same point five minutes later but yeah it, it is great that you can do that another cool thing about Moxfield is that it also has a social media component. So if there's somebody you like, like a content creator or a deck expert, you can follow them. You can follow their Moxfield and it'll let you know in your feed, like Bryant Cook has a new deck. Like, oh, really? What's he up to now? Or whatever. Or you could go into Phil's decks and see what he's up to with Winota. As long as he's keeping his list updated and public, you can see where he's at with it. I do that too. I have all of my previous decks built, and after I win a tournament with Tim Nekrom, I duplicate the list, make it unlisted, so any rando can't find it, and then I work on my updated list, and when it's unlisted, you can share it the link with people, so my Patreon has access to what I'm doing in real time, and then I'll make it public once I've won the tournament with it. And it, it's cool that you have the various levels of, and then there's also just private where nobody can see it except you. And it, it's as shareable as you want it to be. And people can comment on it. I get questions all the time, even on decks that are like a year and a half old. People are like, what's up with the the Tarnished Citadel? I'm like, well, you just need a five color land sometimes. I know it sucks, but my future version or my more recent versions don't play it anymore. If you want to check those out and then you can link to that and have a real conversation with people who are interacting with your deck in real time. At the start of this episode, Brian talked about how you can play magic using various things from Workstation, Cockatrice, Apprentice, X-Mage, Magic Online. There's tons of different ways you can play magic. And Moxfield has a built-in play tester. And fun fact, if you're someone who loves playing Commander over Spell Table, you can even use Moxfield to play over Spell Table. So if you don't have your deck printed out for proxies or even a physical version of your deck with you, you can just use Moxfield's Playtest Builder, or I'm sorry, I don't know the official name, but it's a great way to play games. For the spell table folks specifically, the Moxfield tester is good enough in spell table. You can click on the mo- the cards on Moxfield and it will still display properly what it is. Yeah, it's pretty sick. Like if you're on the road traveling and just have a laptop with a browser, you can play on spell table. You don't have to have any decks with you. Uh, like Brian said, you don't even need to own the deck, oh, whether it's uh, physical or represented with playtest cards. You just make that your screen and share your screen and then click and drag and you're in the spell table game with all your friends. All right, but this is an episode not just about deck lists, but about other online resources. So if you're scared of math, don't worry, because the websites are going to do the math for you. But we're going to talk about hypergeometric calculators now. That's scary, Phil. Uh, It sounds horrifying. You made that word up. I absolutely did. You just shoved together enough like Latin and Greek prefixes and suffixes and everything sounds impressive. Why would I want to use a hypergeometric calculator? Like, why would I need that? Like, my ponder is always going to find lines I diamond, right? Yeah, I mean, there's sometimes where you don't have to do any math. So, for example, if you're trying to calculate the odds of your opponent having their one of Brazen Borrower, it's 100%. And, like, you can just move on. You don't have to do that calculation. Other times, it's a little more difficult. So, for example, I'm going to cast a once upon a time. I'm going to look at five cards. What are the chances I'm going to see a land? 
what are the chances I'm going to see a land that produces black? And it can even be more complicated. What are the chances in my opening hand that I draw a Splinter Twin and a Deceiver Axar? So a hypergeometric calculator is used when you're trying to determine the probability of drawing a card or maybe a type of card over a certain number of draws. If you don't subscribe to the the type of math that is everything is 50%, either happens or it doesn't, then these are great tools to figure out. I do this all the time. I mean, I have used these tools in the past enough that I have a number of like rough and ready math equations in my head I can do where like uh, I'm on the draw with a ponder in my hand and only one land and a two drop I would like to cast. Like I have basic island Stoneforge Mystic. What are the chances I'm going to cast the Stoneforge Mystic on turn two between two draw steps, a ponder, a potential ponder shuffle by the number of white sources in the deck, etc. And having a tool that helps you figure out those percentages and then they become kind of muscle memory, or at least you have a, a rough equation where it's like, I play 20 lands, there's one in my hand, my 53 card deck has 19 lands, slightly better than one in three cards is a land. I'm going to see five cards before I need to hit a land drop. I can do that quickly, but sometimes it is more like once upon a time needs to hit a black source or this hand doesn't function. I mean, Bryant is probably the deepest in this place with like the sort of ponder, crack my LEDs in response. What are the chances I'm going to win here uh, from literally no resources other than what this ponder is about to see? Literally did that last week. I believe it. That's a big part of playing decks like Storm. It's so useful for your mulligan decisions as well. Okay, you know, what are my chances I'm going to draw one of my four copies of Leyline of the Void in my opening seven? How does that change if I put it to three instead? You know, you can get real numbers for how that impacts rather than just like, "Uh, I didn't really miss the extra copy of that card. You can really futz with the numbers and see what happens to the math. Anytime that you're dealing with a card that has like multiple hits, like say like a collected company or something that like that, that looks at a certain number of cards and you want to hit multiple things within that, this makes it so that you don't have to like destroy a pencil doing a bunch of math by hand. So Phil, you talked about something right there that I just want to focus in on for just a minute. And it was, I didn't feel And a lot of playing Magic is people going by their gut feelings because Magic isn't an exact science when when it at the end of the day, it's just not. And a free resource that everyone has is a Google account. And part of that is with your Google account, you obviously get Gmail, but you also get Google Sheets absolutely free. And something you can do is open up a new spreadsheet and create something to track your results. It's something that I've done and you can use it as fantasy baseball on yourself like I do, and you can actually get solid numbers on how you're doing. One thing that I found is that players, if you ask them what their win rate is, they're like, oh, I'm like 70%. And you're like, are you really? And then they start tracking. And I know some individuals guilty of this. They start tracking. They're like, oh, I'm really like 53%. And it's like, yeah, no one wins as much as they think that they do. And everyone assumes that they're like 70-ish percent. And that way you remove the I feel from it and you get some hard, solid numbers. So back on the track of the calculators themselves, if you make a major change to your deck, you can see how the math supports that change. So for example, let's say your deck starts off with four copies of Swords to Plowshares, and you go, this isn't enough removal. How much more removal am I going to see if you know I switch it to seven or eight? You can get hard numbers for how many of these things you are likely to see in X number of cards. It's so nice. And guess what? You don't need to understand the math behind it to use one of these. I'm not going to say they're idiot proof. I won't quite go that far, but they are actually very easy to use. And there's a large number of guides simplifying it for you. Right, and some innocuous deck building changes, like if I'm playing Bant Control and I'm like, graveyard decks are on the rise, I'm going to add an Endurance, creature decks are on the rise, I want to outmuscle those with another copy of Uro, and Wasteland's on the rise, I'm going to add another land. And I cut three spells for those three cards I just said, a land, an Endurance, and an Uro, 
what has that done to Narset Parter Avails activations? Because they have three fewer hits on Narset. The geometric calculator will help you figure that sort of thing out. Personally, my favorite use of it is if I get BT BTFO'd by like Land, Mox Diamond, Chalice of the Void three games in a row, I can calculate exactly what the odds are of my opponent having exactly Mox Diamond, Chalice of the Void, and two lands in an opening hand. And I know exactly how mad I'm supposed to be. Yeah, the YouTube comments will often come in strong when I complain about how incredibly statistically unlikely something is to happen. And then they were like, oh, yeah, you were right. That's one in 8,000 times. And I'm like, <laughs> one time I cast Ponder and the three cards I saw with Ponder were my three other Ponders. And I had a lot of math in my comments that day. <laughs> People are very excited to see that. OK, we are cruising along with this episode and we have a lot to still talk about. Let's talk about public communities. These are like Discord or Reddit, even Twitter, like social media, Facebook. Uh, I find personally find Facebook completely unusable uh, for basically everything. If you are interested in Legacy Infect, I just pulled a deck out of thin air. There is a subreddit for that. There is a Discord community for that. There's a Facebook group for that. There are people you can follow on Twitter who are working on that and you can interact with them. This is true of all decks. And the more popular the deck, the bigger those communities will be. There might even be two or three or more communities who contain different people sharing different ideas. It's really easy when you're in a deck specific discord server with 150 people who just want to talk about infect. It's really easy to get questions answered quickly about your deck. Like, hey, why are we on spell pierce instead of fluster storm? Someone will respond very quickly. Just uh, a couple weeks ago, I was looking at Mono Red Painter, and I was like, why are we on three copies of Magus of the Moon and zero copies of Blood Moon? And very quickly, the Painter community was just like, oh yeah, we, we ran the numbers, here's the chart. It turns out Magus is better in like 61% of matchups, so we just went to the aggregate where it's going to be better than Blood Moon. Like, okay, thanks for the answer, it makes perfect sense. Somebody is out there ready to answer your very specific question about your deck in these various public spaces. These places often have pinned information or information in a sidebar that often will be generically good and is relatively useful. But one of the biggest downsides of these online communities is a lot of good stuff gets buried quickly. Just think of how quickly a conversation moves on Discord. Or something like Reddit is slower paced in losing the information. But, you know, if you come back two or three weeks later, you know, there's just posts and posts and posts and posts and posts. And it's easy for good things to be said in there. And then they're just lost to all time. Right. We are kind of past the era where every deck got multiple write-ups on reputable content platforms. And you could go on Channel Fireball or Star City or wherever and just search uh, for the deck you want and find a recent sideboard guide from a high level player like Ray Duke or Sam Black or LSV or whoever. Uh, we're very much in the, oh yeah, we talked about that last week in the discord control F the chat and try to find it, or I'll dig it up for you or something like that. Or we could just rehash it again when a new member joins. So there's a little bit of circling and spiraling and you, you do have to do some detective work to actually find the information you want. There are people there who are going to be happy to produce that information for you, even if it's already been discussed. One downside, one downside of these communities that I found is sometimes it's an echo chamber. It's a lot of groupthink. It might be 150 people that all play Infect, but they have all been talking to each other for a year following the same concepts. And maybe what they needed was somebody with an outside perspective looking at it with fresh eyes. And thinking, oh, well, actually, I think Embiggen might be right because of X, Y, and Z, but you dismissed it because you think it's worse than Become Immense or whatever. I'm just making up a situation here. But sometimes you just need to not be following the group thinking, taking that step back. And I found that sometimes that's the best thing you can do. Like, I'll join these communities all the time. I recently decided to dig into a new modern deck, and I joined that modern deck's Discord. And they were like, if you don't sideboard this way, you're doing it wrong. It's like, well, there's multiple ways you can sideboard. Let's t let's take a step back here and talk about this. And, you know, I learned something, they learned something. And sometimes that's just what you need. And what Bryant just said is really important because while I do kind of personally bemoan the loss of 
high-level strategic content as the core model of what websites crank out. Those are 2,000 words written one time and posted, and then they are there for anyone to find. Whereas these communities, which are engaged with active members, where it's like, I don't agree with the way that Sam Black's said to Sideboard in this 2,000 word thing that he wrote. And it's like, okay, sure, let's talk about it. Whereas, you know, Sam Black has already, he probably wrote this a week ago and he's already written next week article and he's thinking about the one for two weeks out. Uh, you don't get that back and forth. And maybe he's wrong or maybe he's thinking about something that you're not and just taking it at face value without a conversation uh, is a, something that written content does not provide. And when you first start getting into one of these spaces, I encourage you to examine everything that you are reading with a critical eye, especially until you have a feel for who knows their shit and who doesn't know their shit. Because I've, I've walked into a couple of different communities kind of asking some questions. I've gotten some responses, kind of thought to myself, there's no way that's right. Waited a couple hours. Someone with like a mod color text responds instead and gives me an answer that's way different. Some, sometimes you need to vet the information that you get from these spaces. Uh, and this is especially true on Reddit. You will, you will read some wild stuff if you kind of frequent the, the legacy subreddit. There's some interesting takes out there from people who play legacy uh, with, with very large um, air quotes there. Now, there's also great information on there, all sorts of videos, you know. I've got tens of thousands of karma from that subreddit. So you like, like I'm invested in that community. Critical eye. When you're entering these communities, figure out how to interact as well. Uh, some of them do have robust pinned information or it, uh, primers pinned that answer all the basic questions. And uh, you may get some kind of brush off responses of like, well, did you read the primer? It was in there. Uh, make sure you are following the the codes of the group. Like if there is a, 20,000 word primer, go read it before you start asking level zero questions about the deck and then ask your higher level questions. I know people on Reddit have a specific way that they like to interact with each other. Uh, they fancy themselves amateur journalists rather than you know people on the internet expect a certain amount of qualitative value in every post. Uh, so make sure that you are interacting in a way that will get responses other than dismissal or chided by mods uh, to get the most out of those spaces i think my biggest piece of advice with interacting with these public communities is figure out what each community is good at and go to that place for that thing so for example i go to the legacy subreddit like religiously every week because some people in there sort of categorize all of the like legacy challenge and 5-0 deck list lists and they kind of bring them up in one thread they, you know, sort them by levels of spiciness and interestingness so that you can go and see like, oh, this is what's weird this week. This is the piece of tech. And that's one of the biggest things that I go to the subreddit for. Yeah, that's great advice. You're not going to get everything you want out of one spot, which is why you've, we've provided so many resources for you here. And hopefully you can build a mosaic that ends up improving you as a player from the various pieces from the various places. And I think we're down to one big piece of advice that is very simple and emblematic of the age we live in, and that's Google it. I frequently have people like message me on my Patreon sites or coaching clients who are like, how would you sideboard with Cephalid Breakfast? And then I'm like, I don't know. I haven't thought about that deck in three months. And then I Google sideboarding with Cephalid Breakfast May 2023, and something close to that will pop up. It's impossible to find all of the magic content or at least be aware of all of it. I find phenomenal primers and sideboard guides written by people who I've never heard of on sites I've never heard of, uh, especially uh, across continents uh, where like, it's like I'm, I am uh, Maurizio from Spain. I am a current legacy trophy leader with this deck. These are my credentials. And I'm like, oh, I had no idea who that was, but I see their name on the leaderboard every day. It's cool that they make content. I had no idea. Then you have a great sideboard guide for this deck that you're interested in. And just freaking Google it uh, is, is the best advice I can give on in life and in this particular case. 
We talked about public communities, but there's also private communities. And I know that this episode has mostly been about free access information, but sometimes paying for someone's Patreon at $5 to get their cyborg guide or whatever will save you hours and hours of hard lessons learned. And it's really just worth the $5 that you paid. I like, I know people get really upset when someone says, Hey, just pay the $5. It'll be worthwhile. They're like, no, all information should be free. Blah, 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 blah. I paid for other people's cyborg guides all the time. It's an easy level up. I do recommend it. We have talked about cyborg guides before where they come with a caveat of like, the player who wrote it doesn't do exactly this every time. They might be wrong even. What is important about a sideboard guide is it lets a player use their critical thinking skills to reverse engineer how this other player thinks about the matchup, where Legacy Elves, for example. I used to play a lot of that deck when uh, Julian was crushing over in, uh, in Europe with the deck. In the Miracles era, there were two things you could reasonably do. One of them was board in a ton of discard and try to shovel natural order down their throat or cut all your natural orders and try to two for one them with elvish visionary and nickel and dime them with creatures here and there and just never try to resolve a big spell because they have so many counters just seeing somebody who is currently succeeding with the deck and how they think about it can give you something to think about like okay uh, julian's doing the thoughtsies thing i was doing the no natural orders thing that could be a huge shift in paradigm just from seeing how they think about the matchup. And Brian's totally right. I am a member of a number of Patreons. Uh, it is not a big deal. It's not bad form. If somebody posts like Teamer Cascade Rhino Sideboard Guide in my Patreon and you join it, you download the thing, and then you cancel your membership. You paid the five. You got what you wanted. You don't owe them another month of subscription. People come and go from Patreons all the time. Uh, if you if you're worried you're going to be on the hook and suddenly paying six months later for things you don't want anymore, it is very easy to leave. If you really want to level up, a lot of these deck experts do do tutoring. A lot of times within the first five to ten minutes of a tutoring session, I will teach someone something and they're like, oh, learning that was worth the entire fifty dollars or whatever for this hour already. There are other online resources that are more targeted. You can get a tutoring session from the best dredge player in the world or whatever if you are willing to seek them out. Yeah, that that is pretty much the magic content model. We were talking about free stuff available to everyone for the first uh, 55 minutes, but I cannot hammer home both uh, coaching and Patreon membership. Direct access to the person whose ideas you are following is I, I don't want to say priceless because coaching does have a cost. There is a price you could point at it. Lots of people. I, I am genuinely surprised, which I shouldn't be as a an educator. Uh, I am generally surprised sometimes when folks come to me for coaching the level that they're at versus where they think they are and the fundamental skills that are not present. And they're talking about like super advanced tricky stuff. And I'm like, Let's rewind to that ponder, because I disagree with how you stacked it, and I disagree with the fact that you cast it at all in this position. And then we're like digging into really fundamental skills that you wouldn't even know to look at if you're just like, ponder's in my hand, I'm going to cast it. And then I'm asking you, why? What are you looking for? What are you hoping to improve the hand? We still know two of these cards from a brainstorm. Are you hoping to shuffle? Do we need to work through these? Do we have two turns to draw these cards and say fresh ones off ponder? I can spend 20 minutes in a coaching session on the first ponder of the game. And a lot of people are really just like, yeah, I did not have the ability or awareness to even think about all of the questions you just asked me. And it completely changes the the paradigm for them. And that's something that is probably worth more than whatever that coaching session cost. Hey, everybody. This is Brian and Bryant. We're actually recording this the next morning after we recorded because I kind of shot awake in the night and realized that we forgot one of the most important digital resources for a magic player. It was just a straight up oversight left our brains when we were getting our show notes together. And that's scryfall.com. How can we possibly forget scryfall, Brian? Oh, my God. We use it every day. It's literally an open tab on my computer at all times. I use it more than any of these other sites we talked about combined. Uh, Maybe not like time spent on it. 
it, but certainly frequency of referencing it. And here's the the thing about Scryfall. It has literally anything you want to know about any given card ever. It's better than Gatherer. The Wizards of the Coast owned card search. Scryfall eclipses it. Uh, And I think that might even be why they have the moon icon, if I'm being honest. Yeah, I have not thought of Gatherer as a Magic the Gathering resource uh, in 15 years. I don't know. Uh, That. That is not a great resource. Like many other things, the community has gone above and beyond to replace a Wizards of the Coast-owned object with a better version of the same object. Gatherer, by the way, is the official Wizards of the Coast card catalog, and Scryfall is also a card catalog, but you can customize your search basically however you want. I'm on here all the time. I get these goofy brew challenges for my channel or... I'm building a commander deck or helping somebody build a commander deck. And you can search anything like card name and partial card name. If you're like, I know it's Yavamaya something, you can type in Yavamaya and it'll kick back every card with Yavamaya in its name. You could search by text, which is like, oh, there's this card that like whenever a green creature enters the battlefield, something happens. You can type whenever a green creature enters the battlefield into the text search and it'll give you every card that cares about that. Uh, Type line, color... Go go ahead. Tell me more. You're also forgetting, we've talked about other resources like MTG Top 8 or Moxfield, stuff like that, even Cube Cobra, if that's what you're into. You can even search those sites for decks that might have the card you're looking for. So, for instance, Phil's not here, but if Phil's looking for Thalia Guardian of Thraben decks, you can search decks on Moxfield that contain that card using Scryfall. How crazy is that? Yeah, it is pretty bonkers. And one thing that I've found insanely useful is that you can scryfall filter in advanced search by color. You can also search by commander color identity, which is slightly different than the actual color of a card and frequently comes back with what you actually want rather than the color. That, that That's insane. Uh, you could do a lore search. This is how deep this thing goes. You can search by artist. You could search by flavor text. And then there's lore finder. One of my casual projects on my back burner is a uh, Vorthos deck. Vorthos is a card from Infinity that at the beginning of the game, you choose a Magic the Gathering character. It reduces the cost of all cards that reference that character by Wooburg. Just a pretty spicy thing. And I'm working on a Weatherlight deck, and I can type Weatherlight into this Scryfall lore finder, and it kicks back every card that has the word Weatherlight on it in the flavor text, in the actual text, in the name, and it just really filled out that deck in a way that I would not have been able to do without somebody having thought of to do this. So let's say you're interested in something a little bit more on the tech side. Scryfall also gives you a ton of data about each and every card. So you're able to download high-res PNGs of card images. And I'm not talking about like the tiny little images you get might get from like a Google search. I'm talking about like 800 by a thousand pixel images of high-res cards and the corners are already clipped. That's something you can do with Scryfall. I do this literally every day when I'm making my YouTube thumbnails. And I'm sure you do too, Brian. Like it's just so useful. You can download just the art if you want at a pretty high-res size too. I believe it's 650 by 700. Those are just like two things. But on top of that, you can get into the nitty gritty. There's a json file that has things like the moto id the card hoarder id a bunch of things that you might not think you ever need but once you start doing other stuff like card hovers like i did on the epic storm this actually becomes an incredibly useful resource that goes way deeper than you even thought yeah absolutely any picture of a card that's in any of my youtube thumbnails if i ever tweet a picture of a card all of that is pulled directly from scryfall because i know they're going to have usable, ready-to-copy-paste high-res images of every version of every card, and they're just old reliable. Absolutely. Brian, back in the day, you were a judge, and I'm sure that it's come up once or twice in your judging career where you would go to gather for a card ruling. Maybe you were so good that never needed to happen, but gather used to have card rulings at the bottom, and then it kind of became uh, not so up-to-date anymore. Scryfall does that still with up-to-date information. For example, I'm looking at Thalia Guardian of Thraben because I mentioned Phil, and it says Thalia's abilities affect each spell, and that's not a creature including your own. So yeah, it's a pretty obvious thing. And then the next one says, hey, it's not countering the spell. It actually just costs one more. Those are useful things to know if you're a player learning the game, and Scryfall just has that like gather used to without all the pesky user comments. Right. Among all the other things, it tells you what formats the 
card is legal in. I also have Thalia Guardian of Thraben on the screen because you kept mentioning it. Standard, Pioneer, Modern, Legacy, Vintage, Commander, Oathbreaker, Alchemy, Explorer, Brawl, Historic, Pauper, and Penny Dreadful are all supported formats with Scryfall legality listed. That's pretty comprehensive. I'd be really upset if it was legal in Pauper. I'm just saying. Thalia is legal in most of those formats, but... Popper, still the best one. Yeah, Popper and Penny Dreadful are the two on that list that she's not legal. Are there any other Scryfall features that we want to make sure we mention? This is an incredible service. They have a Patreon that you could support them. It's totally free for Magic players to have this insane resource. We didn't shout out Moxfield. They also have a paid version. MTG Goldfish has a paid version. Uh, all of these things that we've shouted out on this channel or on this episode are free, but you can support them if you want them to. And if Scryfall just poofed away overnight, I would gen- genuinely be devastated. I don't even know what I would replace it with. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think one thing that we haven't covered yet is different card versions. So when you go to gather, you can toggle between the sets and you get a little bit of info. But on Scryfall, you get comprehensive info on each and every different version. So for example, I'm still on Thalia. If I click on Masters 25, it switches over and you get a little bit of different information. It will swap over the flavor text, the watermark symbol, all that good stuff. But that Scryfall uh, JSON file updates, you get the new card ID. So that way there's information on this specific version. But on top of that, every version, so I switched from Masters from Dark Ascension, I can now view it in different languages too, to see the differences of between Japanese and English, for example. And that's not something that other sites have. You're able to actually go really deep into the weeds on specific information on cards. And I just can't think of any other resource that has that. I know that this is not particularly helpful to someone just getting in, but once you're in the weeds, this sort of thing is invaluable. So it is also useful to people who are just getting in because it's a way to figure out what cards exist. Uh, like one of my friends was building a commander deck uh, where he started with Raging River, a card that separates the battlefield into two different piles. And he's like, what can I do with Raging River? I just searched the term separate pile and just it spit back a bunch of cards that separate the battlefield into piles, which many of which I either didn't know or forgot existed. And if you're brand new, you have no chance of knowing about these random cards from like Arabian Nights or whatever. So it's really great for new players too. If you know enough about the game language to know how to search for the words that would be on the card, that's the one barrier. But uh, it is there and it is really helpful. And what you said about the different versions, this is one of my personal amusements that I don't know if this is really a feature or just a funny thing. But like you said, it has every language, every version. It also prices them for you. Like uh, I'm looking at Thalia still, and it just has USD, Euros, and ticks, MTGO ticks for every version. That's good to display. And it will spit back search results that contain the word you searched for, whether you intended it or not. Like if I search for Uro, a card that I search up a lot, Uro, Titan of Nature's Wrath, the card I want is like the very bottom of a full page of results that have the word, the letters U-R-O somewhere in their name. And the other day I was searching for Rancor and I accidentally typed Randor and it actually came up with a result. The French version of Kumena Tyrant of Orcaza is Kumena Tyrant d'Orcaza. R-A-N space D apostrophe O-R. Randor was in there and I came up with an actual hit. And I just think that's <laughs> funny. And yeah, that's uh, I really do enjoy sweet. every time... Yeah, uh, every time I search for something and I'm like, oh, LOL. Uh, like one time I remember feel- feeling like a genius. I needed to add images of Tropical Island and Assassin's Trophy to a thumbnail. And I just searched for Trop and I got both of them. So uh, there's just like some fun little things that I enjoy as someone who enjoys language. Yeah, and I think, I mean, this is a really niche thing, but I'm sure you remember this from when we were younger. People used to be obsessed with creating global collections of cards, and Scryfall just gives you all that information. I clicked on Mina Harker, the alt version of Thalia Guardian of Thraben, and you can actually view every single language that it comes in visually as well. So that way you'll know, oh, hey, I'm missing Portuguese or whatever it might be. Uh, and I just can't think of any other resource that's had this in my life. Like you're like, ah, oh, was it printed in this the Romance languages? I don't remember that sort of thing. Yeah, it just has all of the information out there. Like if you have a question, it's probably on Scryfall. Yep, absolutely. Okay, is that enough of a addendum love letter to one of our favorite resources that we can 
actually call it an episode this time. I believe so. If you're interested, there's also syntax that you can search for. I know that Alex McKinley of the Epic Storm is obsessed with this. Uh, so if you click on the syntax button near the search up top, you can type T equals legend for type, and then you can just search all legends, for example, or T equals goblin, and it'll search every single goblin type. There's a lot of shortcuts you can use in the search, so that way you don't even have to use the advanced search. And I think that's something other sites don't have. You can also do is vanilla, and it will literally load all blank creatures. So like any just like two two grizzly bear for example it's incredibly powerful yeah absolutely it has that in common with moxfield where you can click around drag use the menus and stuff to get things done but if you really lean in and learn the syntax you get all sorts of level up shortcuts and stuff as well all right well that's all i have to say i feel embarrassed that we forgot it brian because this is truly one of the best resources online honestly i'm just glad that we remembered it before the episode was in the can and out, this would have, tr- uh, we might have had to actually print some sort of apology or retraction in a future episode, which I don't think is something we've done before. But shout out to our editor, Phil, for being able to tack this on at the end. Thanks, Phil. And shout out, yeah, shout out to everybody for sticking around. We'll talk to you in two weeks. Mm-hmm.